Our scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 7 through 20. Um, if it makes anyone feel a little bit better, this sermon was shaping up to be a lot longer than what it's going to be because I thought, no, i got to cut this into part one, part two. So um, I'm going to read all the way through verse 20. We won't be dealing with all of those verses in the sermon this morning. This will be part one of Living Steadfastly, and we'll come back next week and uh, look at part two of that. So James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. May the Lord our God give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. Let's look to him in a prayer for illumination. Father, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive as your spirit guides us into the truth this morning, giving us understanding of these ancient words written down by your servant James for the church in his day, but Lord, carried across the centuries, preserved for us as your holy and divine word, that we may know who you are and that, Father, we may know how to live before you and in relationship with you as you speak to us through the scriptures this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noted as we were reading through the scripture this morning that James is one of those books in scripture, and there are a few that kind of come to what feels to us like an abrupt ending. James doesn't include any personal greetings the way Paul often does at the end of his letters. He doesn't have sort of a summary statement or anything along the lines. He just says what he says, and then he stops writing. Um, to be honest, it may be um, in those days, um, people were a little bit more limited if you got to the end of the scroll and there was no more room. There was just no more room. You didn't just run out and grab another piece of paper and put it into the printer. You finished your letter. It could be as simple as that, but we know that James was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and so he said 
what God wanted him to say to communicate his truth to his people in that day and in our day, and that's what we need. But speaking of that rather abrupt end of James in chapter 5, one of the study Bibles that I quite routinely look at in my preparation suggests this closing section asks as a summary of various sins and their solutions, kind of like, well, it's not really too connected. But what if that's not what's happening here? What if the flow of thought in this entire letter from James is basically consistent from his opening greeting all the way to the end of the letter. What would that mean as we try to interpret these final verses? Well, what was the opening theme and message of James' letter to the church. We identified that all the way back at the beginning of the series when we were looking at chapter 1. We found it in verses 2 through 4, where James wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And here at the end, it's worth saying again that even that much, count it all joy, like the sign has said for several months now, when you encounter various Trial or trials of various kinds. That's counterintuitive to the wisdom of the world. That's not what we are used to hearing. That's not what we want to hear when we go to someone and we express that we are in a time of struggle or trial. We don't expect them to come to us and say, well, count it all joy. I remember as a child having some difficulties at school from time to time and I would come home and I would share those struggles with my mom and with my family and I got to say ordinarily their response was not, hey, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. No one likes trials and struggles. Doesn't matter if you are a child in school or an employee in the workplace or a patient who has just received some bad news about a prognosis from your physician. We don't enjoy trials. We don't go looking for trials. We fall into trials of various kinds. That's a more literal translation of the word that's translated meat here in James 1, verse 2. And if you fall into something, if you fall into a hole, it's only natural to try to get out. And we'll see in a moment that there's nothing really wrong with that. James did not say, when you fall into a hole, when you fall into a trial, when you find yourself enduring a time of struggle, build a cabin there and move in. I had some friends who were recently doing some hiking and climbing up in the mountains. They went pretty deep into the backcountry. Now suppose for just a moment that one of them had fallen into a crevasse of some kind. It didn't happen, and I'm thankful for that. But suppose it had. Well, it wouldn't have been wrong in that circumstance for the person who fell in to try to extricate himself from that predicament or for those who were with him to help with the project. But it would have been really foolish to have that experience and then not learn and grow from it, not recognize that there was a lesson there that could be picked up and taken the next time they go into the backcountry so that this possibly wouldn't happen again. And that's James' point. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for 
because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You can count it all joy then when you encounter trials because you can be assured that through the trial, whatever that trial may be, God is at work to teach you something, to build something into your life. The something in particular here is steadfastness. And furthermore, if you let steadfastness have its full effect, its perfect working, literally, then you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You will be Christ-like. You will be mature. You will live in this world as the people of God, reflecting the glory of Christ. You could then, as Peter wrote, rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. See how the message of Peter and James overlap. Rejoice, though now, for a time, you have been grieved by various trials. And this is happening so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter has the very same message that James does. Rejoice, even though you're going through trials. And frankly, that's going to be the state of our lives. And James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, for you know God is at work in these things. And if that's their point, and I really believe that it is, then here at the end of the letter, James has come right back to where he began. We started to see this last Sunday in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Be steadfast. Same concept. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. But what if things are going particularly bad? What if, to borrow the title of what years ago was a popular children's book, what if you're having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Well, then skip down to verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, as an example of what it looks like to count it all joy, and to live steadfastly through a time of trials and suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Which is exactly what James told us to do. Count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds, knowing that the trial of your faith produces steadfastness. We consider those blessed who remain steadfastness. In fact, James goes on, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And I want to point out here again that Job is not an accidental example. Unfortunately, for better or for worse, in verse 11, the old King James Version read, ye have heard of the patience of Job. And somehow in our society, that phrase, the patience of Job, came to be thought of as an attribute that we need while we are standing in line at the Bureau of Registries waiting to get our license plate, or while we are waiting for a university admission letter, or while we are waiting for the bell to ring at the end of the school day, or while we are waiting for that hideous red light by the bridge. 
that isn't timed with the one that's half a block in front of it. So you're sitting at the red light on the street and the light ahead of you is green, but you can't go. You, you know, you think you need the patience of Job for that. That's not what James was talking about. Job was not patient as he awaited the direct deposit of his tax refund. Job was steadfast in the face of trials, in the face of events that cost him literally everything. He lost his wealth. He lost his livelihood. He lost his children. And he lost his health. Talk about falling into trials of various kinds. Job is the poster child for trials of various kinds. Yet he endured, at least at first, in an open-handed way. Job looked at everything that he had lost, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it was against that backdrop. James was looking at a man who had lost everything but his life, and then he wrote, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, frankly, many people, maybe even some here in this room, have read the first couple of chapters of the book of Job, and that is not what they have come away with. Boy, God is sure compassionate and merciful, isn't he? But James did. He comprehended the whole story, not just the first couple of chapters, but all the way to the end of the book. And then he went on to say, you have heard of these things. You know the narrative. You know the story. You know how this goes. Now you be like Job. You deal with your trials, which are almost certainly far less than his, in the same steadfast way that he did. And he went on to describe for his readers what it would look like to live steadfastly and patiently as they endured the trials that we all endure in this life, waiting for the coming of the Lord and the vindication of his people. So here it is. Here's what it would look like. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you, among us, having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, or week, or month, or year, or decade? What then? What are we to do? Let him grumble and complain? Let him lash out at others? How about this? This seems proactive. Let him take charge of his own life and arrogantly boast that soon he will turn things around. He's going to get a handle on this and everything's going to be okay. No. James says, is anyone suffering? Let him pray. That's what we need to do. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone going through a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad time? Look to God. Look to the Lord your God. And, and this makes perfect sense that he would give us this if we really believe, as we claim to believe in the Reformed Church, that everything that comes our way in life, everything, all things come, not by chance. The drought this summer was not an accident. COVID-19 did not come to us by chance. Nothing comes by chance but by his fatherly hand. 
So you can count it all joy when you fall into various trials because God is at work. I think C.S. Lewis had this very thing in mind in The Problem of Pain when he wrote, We can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. Lewis is saying, we can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities. We can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If we believe then that whatever the trials we may be enduring right now, great or small, if the trials of various kinds that we have fallen into might be described as suffering, James says, pray, look to the Lord your God. Peter fleshed it out a bit more, writing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Look to the Lord your God and do so while doing good. Pray. And trust your soul to the God who made you and then seek to continue abounding always in the work of the Lord. This is our calling as Christians when we suffer. When we go through these things that we never asked for, didn't plan for, didn't want, and wish we could avoid at all costs, this is our calling. By all means, get out of the crevasse if you can. But while you're in it, look to God for rescue and look to God so that you can understand that he is at work in this trial. If you belong to him, then he has been at work and he always will be at work in everything that happens in your life. But James recognizes we don't always feel that experience of suffering. It's pretty endemic to the world. But what if it's a beautiful morning? What if you woke up this morning... Pardon me for this, I, I wrote it, I guess I have to read it. What if you woke up this morning with a beautiful feeling that everything's going your way? Well, James would have you entrust that to the Lord as well. Again, the end of verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If things are going well, if you don't identify yourself as being in a time of struggle or trial right now, don't assume that you have brought about that situation by your own strength. Don't assume that you deserve it. Don't assume that, look at me, I'm such a great person, look how God is blessing me. Just give thanks. Sing praises, be cheerful. Give thanks for those blessings, remembering that every good and perfect gift is from above. You didn't make it happen yourself. You can't make it happen yourself. If you are happy, that is because God has blessed you, and every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If truly good things are happening in your life, then hallelujah, especially now. But remember that these come only from God. And remember also, as Job said, it is the Lord who gives, and it is the Lord who takes away. 
So we can rejoice when our hands are filled with good things because those good things come from the Lord our God. But we can also rejoice when our hands are empty. And frankly, I think that's the more important part because when our hands are empty, when we are not clinging to this world or to the stuff of this world, that's when we are actually free to take hold of and cling to God and God alone to understand that our hope is not found in the knowledge and the things of this world. Our hope is found in the living God. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Now one more. What if your particular terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day takes the form of physical weakness or illness? Well, in that case, James wrote, is anyone among you sick. Now please listen carefully here. The New International Version translates this in a certain way, and it's a weak translation of the Greek words that are here. The ESV is not completely in line, but but it's better in some sense. The word translated sick in this verse is a compound word, asthenai. So like when we were studying Revelation, we talked about ah, millennial. Ah being the negation, the prefix that negates what comes after. An ah, millennialist is someone who does not believe in a literal 1,000-year millennium. Well, ah, stenai is without strength. Um, it's translated sick. In the NIV, it's translated sick. Here in the ESV, but if you were a first century Christian who was reading James' book and you read the word asthenai in your brain, you would go to without strength. That's how you would have understood it. And asthenai can refer to almost any kind of physical, spiritual, emotional weakness. Physical illness, disease, is just one possible understanding of without strength among so many possible understandings. Asthenai is the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 11 when he wrote, that is why many of you are weak, weak, asthenai. That is why many of you are without strength and ill. And he sets the word in contrast to the word ill. He's not repeating himself. He's making a point. Because of what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11, you may be weak, you may be without strength, or you may be ill. That would be something else. So asthenai is a bigger word than just sick. And we need to understand that it is a bigger word than just sick because where James is going to go as he proceeds from this point is into things that just speak to so much more than I woke up this morning with a bit of a sore throat. But it really doesn't matter whether it's something big or something small, something physical or something spiritual or something emotional. James' prescription is the same. Is anyone among you without strength? Commit that to the Lord too. So it's like James was saying, are you suffering? Turn to God. That's where you look when you're suffering. Are you happy? Are you cheerful? Turn to God. That's where you need to look, and that's where you need to direct your praise and thanksgiving. Are you without strength in body, soul, or spirit? 
Whatever the case may be, are you without strength? Then entrust yourself to your faithful Savior. Because after all, you belong to him, body and soul, both in life and in death. I think I, think I heard that somewhere before. And how are we to entrust ourselves to God when we find ourselves without strength? Well, James chapter 5, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you asthenos without strength? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now some have taken the oil in James chapter 5 as medicine. Um, they, they, they've said that in those days physicians weren't readily available, it was just medicine. I heard one very, very popular evangelical preacher say the way he reads this verse, when he is called to come and pray for the sick, he refuses to do it if they're not taking their medicine. That may be, I, I disagree. Um, I think that would make sense if asthenai was used here to refer exclusively to physical sickness. So I'm not going to argue the point much, but I'm not convinced. The combination here of the anointing with oil and prayer and even the confession of sin in this context leads me to conclude that when the elders were called in to pray for those who were without strength, they were instructed to anoint those people with oil to give a tangible representation that even if some physician or treatment was involved, ultimately, God is our refuge and our strength. I'm not opposed to medicine or physicians or hospitals or anything of the kind, not at all. But we have to recognize as Christians, whether we are without strength in body or soul or spirit, we can go to counselors, we can go to physicians, we can do all of the things that people in the world would do, but those only work if God is behind them. He is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. We look to him and we trust in him to save us is the word that James is about to use. Some have thought of it as medicine. I think that falls short. Some have acted as if the anointing with oil is some sort of a quasi-magical ritual, that it's the oil itself that somehow brings healing to the sick person. It, it's, it's akin to those who think that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, the bread literally transforms itself somehow into the physical body of Christ, and we are eating the flesh of Christ. It's not given in that sense either. It's given as a tangible, visible reminder that when we pray for God to be our strength, it is God who will be our strength, however he may work. The combination of anointing and prayer and the confession of sin has to lead us to that place. Whether we are weak in physical body because of illness, whether we are weak in spirit because some emotional trauma that we've endured, whatever the cause of our weakness and distress, James says, is anyone among you without strength? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, I know that's not a satisfactory place to stop, but we're going to. 
Um, and we're going to come back next week, and we're going to pick up here where we left off, and we're going to carry on to the end. But hear the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Are you suffering? Is what you're going through right now suffering? Look to God. Pray for the wisdom that you need to remain steadfast until Christ receives you to himself. That is how we respond to suffering. Is anyone cheerful? Look to God. Sing praise to him because every good and every perfect gift is from above. If you're having a happy time in your life right now or if you're having a happy time with your family or if you are cheerful about what's happening, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We don't deserve this stuff. The pop of your book years ago asked when bad things happen to good people, and it, the, the premise was bad. We shouldn't wonder why bad things happen to good people. We should wonder why good things happen to us. And they happen to us because God blesses us, and he gifts us, and he pours out his grace and his spirit in abundance. And if we are cheerful because of all of those things, give thanks to God. And is anyone among you without strength? Look to God. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's what the passage says. And that's what we are to do if we want to apply this particular passage to the particular circumstances of our lives. Now again, we're coming back to this next week, but James goes on to say, as they do, as we call for the elders and as the elders come and pray, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So it's so. So it's I. Save. The New International says the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. There's a way of saying that in Greek, and James doesn't use it. James says the prayer of faith will save, sozai, the one who is sick. It's the very same word that Paul uses in, Galat or in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, when he says, for by grace you are saved, sozai, through faith. Different tense, same word. So James is getting at something far deeper than just being made well in the physical realm. The prayer of faith will save the one who is without, or no, kemnonte here, not asthenos, a little bit different word, but it means weary or fatigued. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So if the Lord is willing, if we live another week and we come back here next Sunday, whether we are here in person or whether we are here in some virtual setting, we will finish this study. But for this morning, let me just close with James' concluding exhortation. Therefore, because this is the case, because we are to commit our suffering and our cheerfulness and our weakness and our illness to God and pray and involve the elders of the church, because this is the case, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And we will see how James calls the example of Elijah to make that point about the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Let's look to the Lord our God in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you 
that you did not leave us without a witness to who you are and to how you call us to live in relationship to you. Thank you for this letter of James. Thank you for the way that he speaks to us in such practical terms, calling us to live in the face of suffering and trial with joy in our hearts because we know that your Holy Spirit is at work to accomplish your purposes in all of these things. And Father, we pray for the wisdom and the steadfastness, the patience, and the grace that we need to endure the trials and even the good times of our lives, looking to you always, trusting only in you, and glorifying your holy name through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.